0: You are listening to Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. It is me, Daisy. Welcome. This is a podcast all about extraordinary people and extraordinary stories. Here we will shine the spotlight on their journeys and hopefully learn something about ourselves and the way that we live our lives from their experiences too. Join me for the next half an hour as we get to know our guests. Hello, how you doing? I'm really excited for this week's episode, you know. We're going to be joined by Chris Lemons, who you may know as the star of the Netflix documentary, Last Breath. He was diving off the coast of Ireland when he got cut off from his oxygen supply and he was left completely stranded and alone at the bottom of the ocean. As I said, I'm a massive fan of his documentary. It's one that I put absolutely everyone onto. He seems like such a genuine and inspirational guy
2: as well. Let's meet him.
0: Thank you so much for being here, Chris. This is an absolute honour.
2: Oh, not at all. It's my honor's all mine, really. Thank <laughs> you so much for, for inviting me. So kind of you.
0: <laughs> oh, you're such an amazing guy. I mean, I first heard about your story through watching the doc on Netflix. I've watched it many a times. I think the first time I saw it was actually on a plane. The sea is something that fascinates me. And I think being a diver is a dream job for a lot of kids growing up too. How on earth did you get into this?
2: I sort of fell into it, really. Yeah, um, it's, it is an unusual sort of... Uh, line of work isn't it and it's there's there's a, sort of the dream of it and then there's a reality of course like many jobs but um yeah if you've seen the film there's a uh, dave and duncan who are were my were my sort of partners in crime on the day they they both got into diving through uh you know they had a passion for it before they was a scuba diver out in thailand and um and duncan sort of was, is a bit older grew up watching Cousteau and things like that on the, on the tv and they both found a way really to make their Their passion, their vocation, really. But for me, it um, was—it wasn't really the case. I was just pretty young and um, completely unsure. As to what to do with my life um and i just got the opportunity really for a summer job of sorts you know just a bit of bit of pocket money a friend's father got me a job working on the on the back deck of one of these boats um what we call a dive support vessel so i got to sort of see firsthand, in a way and um it was a job unlike a lot of people i didn't really know very much about it and i didn't really know that it existed particularly um but it was fascinating to watch and i think as soon as i saw them and You know, there's some truth in the fact that they probably turned up in better cars than me on the keyside as as well. (laughs) Um, But, you know, uh, yeah, that's it. It sort of lit the touch paper for me and I I realised, you know, what I wanted to to do in my life. It gave me some direction, which was fantastic in itself.
0: I think not only does the film obviously tell your story, but it really shows the dedication and the training and how fit and how experienced you guys really are before you even take your first dive how long did the average dive or does the average dive take you Chris how long are you usually under four
2: I think that's a bit that's a bit flattering by the way but thanks thanks anyway <laughs> um we so the particular type of diving I do is, is called saturation diving which is a very unusual way of diving really but that's designed really to allow you to spend a long time on the bottom so we I work almost almost exclusively these days in the North Sea, and we're we're regulated that we're only allowed to spend six hours a day in the water. So that's what we do. Usually about six hours, actually in the water, which is normally on normally on the seabed, um, walking around in a pair of um, you know yellow wellies. But sometimes we're swimming. But yeah, six hours is the limit. Thankfully.
0: <laughs> six hours see to me obviously with zero diving experience that seems like a long time to be underwater yeah. and you're, you're saying you're walking along the seaboat as well which is what i found particularly fascinating too chris when you set out on this particular dive um were you concerned about the conditions beforehand the weather did you sense that anything was going to go wrong
2: no no far far from it it was probably the reverse actually it was um Normally, say it's just you know it felt very much like a normal day at the office. Um, as as you know, as much as working on the bottom of the North Sea can ever be normal, but you know it's something we do all day every day. The weather conditions and maybe you know the 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 weather you see in the film is probably slightly exaggerated, but it was pretty rough. But that's that's fairly normal for working out there. If you if you couldn't work in those conditions, then we'd, we'd never get anything done really. Um, but no, it was pretty. The visibility was quite clear, which is unusual. And um, we were doing a job that day or a task that day that we were pretty familiar with. Um, so no, no, no sense at all of what the, uh, what was to come really. And so walk us
0: through. <laughs> this is a thing though, isn't it? This is exactly the thing. Walk us through what it's like diving down to a seabed, Chris, cause I, I cannot visualize this whatsoever. What are the conditions? Like, can you see anything? What is it like when you hit the floor? Cause it, it must be such a disorientating experience.
2: Yeah, that's that's a very good way of describing it. Disorientating is is exactly what it is a lot of the time. I mean it can be very variable. There are there are sort of magical days when the water is the water is beautifully clear, and uh our, we go down in a diving bell, and that's usually sort of sits about 10 metres off the seabed and you you jump off the diving bell and sort of float down to the to the seabed. And it can all feel quite quite magical, you know, a little bit, a little bit like being what you imagine maybe being a, a spaceman would be like, you know, mm. although obviously they're much better qualified than we are. But yeah, it can, it's sort of like a—it's a strange environment. It's, it's got an ethereal sense to it. It's—you um, know—it's very quiet normally. The way that we—we um, we, we breathe our—I won't bore you with the details, but basically, it's—we um, we don't sort of have bubbles flying out of our helmets or anything like that. It's actually a very quiet, quiet place to be. Um, mm. But yeah, a lot of the time, it's—it's it's very dark. Um, we work at night a lot of the time, but generally, particularly when we go deeper than sort of 50, 60 meters, um, it's completely dark. So yeah, times it can be lovely, but you know the, I'll probably say 80% of the time it's it's actually fairly miserable because it's it can be muddy and you can barely see your hand in front of your face and very easy to get lost and it's quite you know the diving part it is probably the easy, the easy part in a way it's the sort of the stress and the pressure like like any job really of, of performing in that in that environment really so um, yeah there's there's good days and bad days I guess like um like any job
0: and you're attached to your vessel by what you call an umbilical cord basically what is the purpose of this?
2: It's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, it is our giver of life, really. Um, so the the bell, the diving bell, has a, a sort of large umbilical which comes down to to it, and then it splits three ways. Um, we have um, we go down in teams of three. Uh, one diver always stays in the in the diving bell every day, and then um, the other two. And drop down to the seabed to work at some um, sort of roles that we change every day but yeah the umbilical splits and uh and goes to each diver uh, and basically provides breathing gas um so we breathe um because of the depths we're working out we can't we can't breathe air so we breathe um, what's called heliox which is a mixture of helium and oxygen um Which means, uh, and often when you're very deep, you can be breathing as little as um, sort of two to three percent oxygen in certain uh, uh, sort of certain situations, purely because the the pressures involved mean that that same volume of gas is, you know, it's the same as uh, the equivalent of breathing twenty-one percent on the surface. Uh, So it gives you an endless supply of gas, really, and then it also provides you with hot water. Um, We wear a, a quite a loose fitting wetsuit down on the bottom um and um hot, well, water gets pulled out of the sea and 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 warmed uh, on the ship and then pumped down to us to sort of pour through our suit to keep us warm because it can be you know 3 or 4 degrees um celsius down there uh, it also gives you electricity to provide uh, light for a hat and and uh, power for a camera on your on your helmet um, and then, as I said, instead of breathing our bubbles out, the, the gas that we breathe out is sucked back up to the ship and, and recycled, basically, because um, Heliox is a very expensive commodity, really. So um, they try and reuse it, they, they clean it and add a bit of oxygen and send it back down to us, really. Yeah. So, yeah, it's everything you need to survive in what are, you know, obviously fairly, fairly harsh conditions
0: it's your lifeline i remember um you speaking with this heliox in the documentary and, and you were saying it makes you speak with a very high voice but after about 30 seconds the laughs are over and you sort of get your job done and, and you're over it um but you yeah, know, that yeah it, is. It, does. it makes you
2: sound very stupid yeah and i think i think i said that i said that in the <laughs> documentary but yeah it's um, it's funny for five minutes yeah but it's when you're having to yeah. do anything like you when know, i ring the bank manager or speak to people at home it it's actually very frustrating because it's not just the, the silly voice it's also when you're very deep and you live uh, under pressure, you know, so your I think your vocal cords basically get constricted as well. And it's, you can be mm-hmm. almost unintelligible when you're very deep. Yeah. Which is a real pain, to be honest.
0: That umbilical is your absolute lifeline, Chris. I, I feel like you've, um, you've summarized that up. You've re- you've really stressed on the importance of that <laughs> on the diving question, things above the water start to go wrong your crew were losing control of the vessel due to the weather and you're told to abort this mission. Were you nervous at this point at all or was this a common occurrence? I'm guessing you were sort of trained for things to go a little bit wrong and for you to have to leave a mission and and go back up to the vessel. So did panic set in at this point or did you think... That everything was sort of under control.
2: It wasn't really the weather that caused a problem. It was a uh, basically a computer system which holds the vessel right. in one place that failed. But yeah, we we sort of heard alarms in our helmets. But even that in itself is not unusual. Is exactly. that as you say, you know, little things do happen occasionally. There are technical problems, and we will have to you know come back to the diving bell for whatever reason. And we can we can also hear we've got a sort of direct line of communication to a, a dive supervisor up on the ship, and we can hear everything he's saying and everything that's going on in the background as well, which is usually people you know slate in divers to be honest um but, but yeah it was i think it made us our, our ears prick up you know but there was definitely no panic at that point um we didn't even really know what was going on um and then our, um i sort of the dive supervisor his name was craig frederick and he's a, he's a canadian guy and he told us really just to get ourselves out of the structure we were working inside and, and back to the diving bell but there was, there was something in the tone of his voice which told us it wasn't a drill it was fairly serious but yeah we, we certainly didn't Panic at that point. No,
0: like a standard procedure just kicks in. Then right, you you guys are professionals, you guys know what to do, and I don't think anyone could really expect what happened next. Am I right in saying, Chris, as well, that umbilical is gives you a good sense of direction too?
2: Yeah, it's um, it's not so much direction, but it's your when you are sort of di- scuba diving, for example, you know, you have always got the option of going to the to the surface. You know, it's never advisable mm. to do that quickly, but that is always a possibility. But in the kind of diving we do, because our boring you with the physics and the biology really but your your tissues are effectively saturated with 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 inert gases if you were to go to the surface it would mean you know a pretty instant death from explosive decompression really so there is only one safe haven when we're diving and that is that is the diving bell that's the place you have to go to if there's any kind of a problem Uh, and your yeah your umbilical is your your guide back to that really you know that's that's the thing you have to follow to get back there
0: So your vessel starts to drift away now Chris and your cold has got you trapped and this is a point where you start to notice I don't know whether you start to notice tension in it but your crew members certainly notice that there is a lot of tension that that umbilical is under what is going through your mind at this point in time because I'm guessing this is the point whereby you're realizing things are starting to go wrong.
2: Yeah, I definitely realised things were going wrong. Um, I still don't think I had an appreciation of what was actually happening. Um it's it's it happened so, so very, very fast. Um our umbilicals are only 50 meters long. And um, as you say, the boat was basically drifting away at the mercy of the wind and the waves above. And um, my umbilical got caught on a, a transponder bucket, which is just a metal outcrop, really. Um the film sort of belies how quickly it happens really i think that video is looped in the film a bit and it, it it's just very very fast but i wasn't thinking much at all it's just complete fight or flight i was thrashing around trying to to free it really um but it tightened very very fast indeed i mean effectively at that point i'd become you know the anchor on the end of a an 8000 ton vessel <laughs> there's only going to be one one winner in that situation but you're right dave uh, who was in the water with me he sort of turned to to try get try and get back to me he realized my umbilical caught and he could sense the you know the enormous tension starting to to come on it um but yeah. unfortunately for well for him and for me that uh, he he was you know he was at the end of his 50 meters of umbilical if you like um and was only able to get with to within the, you know a couple of meters of me
0: Oh, that is so heartbreaking. That moment mm-hmm. right there of, of realising he's at the end of his cord and he can basically do nothing. What are you signalling towards each other? Could you obviously you can see each other. Could you sense fear in his eyes? What, what were your feelings towards each other in that moment?
2: I think my memory of it is that I think my so my communications cable, I think at that point internally had stretched or snapped to the point that I'd lost the ability to speak to him. Mm. But we definitely had a. Um, we both describe it in a similar fashion, really. That almost a cinematic moment when we were looking at each other, you know, um, in the eyes, and um, but unable to speak, and we can only really see each other's eyes through the through the face plates. But his eyes were definitely saying, "You know, I'm sorry, pal. You're on <laughs> you're on your own." Yeah. Uh, and mine were were no doubt sort of pleading pleading with him to, to to try and help me. Um. And then he he was sort of pulled backwards, and I can remember losing sight of him, but still being able to see his his light um, as he was dragged backwards and away uh, off the roof of the structure. And then, you know, his light, his light disappeared as well. And um, I never saw him again, unfortunately. Well, Mm. until later. Until after. (laughs) Thank God.
0: Thank yeah. God.
2: Yeah, spoiler, See, I I really do, cool do make
0: it. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say this at the at the start of this episode because the biggest cliffhanger in, in the film on Netflix is um is you, you don't you don't appear until the end and I can't tell you how much I cried. I I, I did watch it for the first <laughs> time on a plane and I think a lot of the passengers are sort of looking around at me, wondering what was going on. I know you're you're more emotional on a plane anyway, but the yeah, story is yeah. just so incredible. And I feel like this episode a load of people will go and watch it, no doubt. Um, the film on Netflix after, but we've, we've given away the biggest cliffhanger because you're
2: you're here. I've been been dying. I've been dying. I've never been on a plane yet where it's been on. I've been dying to be on one, you know,
0: and catch
2: catch somebody watching, you know, and just stick my head around the corner and say, it does, it does make it. Yeah. But yeah, I I also, I wasn't sure whether that would work in the film, whether the, whether it was people, they would be able to sell the fact that I don't, you know, I possibly don't make it, you know, it does seem to, it does seem to work. Yeah.
0: So your umbilicals, snapped Chris and you've seen your crew member basically slip away into the darkness. Is your, your bellman was Duncan. Am I right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Duncan's a great guy. I Uh, I, I really, I really like Duncan. (laughs) Um, He pulls, he basically pulls up your umbilical cord and I'm I'm guessing he's praying that you're going to be on the end of it and you're not. Do you know the impact that that had on him as he shared his experiences of, of that time?
2: Yeah. Um, so Duncan, as you say exactly that. Duncan is exactly as he comes across in the film. He's a very deeply lovely man, and um, he had been a sort of a father figure to me, I guess. In in my career you know at least uh, i was in the infancy of that i've been a diver for a long time before that but that particular kind of diving i'd only been doing for about a year and a half and a lot of that time had been spent with duncan mentoring me effectively and we we you know we hung out at each other's houses back at home and been to parties together and things like that so we, we'd grown pretty close and we spent a lot of time in people's company and that in that type of work so obviously the, the umbilical had, had snapped at that point and he had to pull in a you know himself sort of slightly unaware really what was happening it didn't feel natural to him pulling that umbilical in um and he was worrying you know first of all he wasn't sure what he was going to get because there's all sorts of scenarios you know he was even going to get what he did get which was a you know pretty tattered broken hoses or he was going to get uh, a helmet on the end of it with with no head in it or he was going to a helmet with a with a head in it you know and uh, all of those were pretty bad (laughs) bad outcomes um and yeah, we—I mean—to talk about trauma a little bit. I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's funny how it affects people differently, or what happened affect people differently. I—I I, I personally don't feel that I've—I've I've suffered in any way at all. Really, um, yeah. I don't know if that's partly because you know when you're directly involved with some something, it's sometimes a bit easier. And I suppose yes. I've had the cathartic process of telling a story many times and talking to people about it. But a lot of people had to witness it that night. Um, not so much Duncan, although you know he definitely gets emotional about it still. Uh, but a lot of people you know we have 110 people on that boat just to put three divers on the seabed and a lot of those people and had to watch everything in real time on screens around the boat and, and there's some pretty harrowing footage in the film and some of that lasts you know 30 35 minutes in, in real in, yeah. you know, in real life and they would have been watching you know a colleague and hopefully at least for one or two of them a, a friend um, supposedly dying and that, that must have been very very hard and certainly people you know the the rov pilot for example um decided never to work with with divers again and uh, a lot of people had sleepless nights since you know yeah
0: you had some gas in a reserve tank didn't you chris which was intended to get you back to a boat um but it was very very limited how conscious were you of this of of your limited air supply and, and what you had left
2: yeah, very conscious. Um, yeah, exactly. As you say, we, we call that a, a bailout. So it's an emergency supply gas, but unfortunately we were, we were at 91 meters that night, I think. And you had two big bottles on my back, but you use those up very quickly at that depth um, because of the, the pressures involved. So I, I don't think I had a clear idea of how much I had in there. Um, I knew, I knew at some point that I'd, I'd, I'd sort of fallen back to the seabed after the umbilical had broken and, and managed to climb my way back up to the top of this structure. Um fully I remember fully expecting to see people coming to to come to rescue me to see Dave or Duncan or somebody on their way to to get me. But I got up there and 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 saw nothing but you know complete and utter blackness in the in the sea above me. Um and I remember at that point having a little think about, you know, that's taken me three or four minutes to get up here. I've probably only got, you know, the film makes a big deal of five minutes, but it's probably more like nine if you do the math properly. But you know, I knew it was only maybe three or four minutes of gas left, mm. um, which was a very strange thing. You know, particularly when you I realised that even if Dave had been right in front of me at that point, ready to pull me back up to the to the diving bell, I mean even then the the margins would have been pretty fine in terms of getting me back into a breathable environment and, and taking my helmet off um, before I ran out of gas. So you know you realize fairly quickly that the odds are massively against you getting out of this. Um, but that that in a weird way had a, a strangely calming effect um because you know the panic sort of subsided from me at that point not because I'd lost hope but because you you realize there's not much point thrashing around and panicking, panicking anymore because there was there was absolutely nothing I could do to help myself really yeah, so sort of resignation and grief I remember coming over uh, coming over me and um yeah I spent a few strange lonely minutes on the bottom effectively counting down the what felt like counting down the seconds till till I was about to die yeah
0: how was time manipulated? It's, it's interesting the way you speak about time as well, Chris, because there are certain moments that I can imagine went so fast, like the snapping of this cord or, or it getting trapped. But then I can imagine certain moments playing out cinematically as well, whereby time is almost dragging on and you've got sort of snapshots of the other diver that was with you slowly, slowly drifting away. How, how were you conscious of time and, and how was time manipulated in that, in that scenario?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Um, I don't know if that's slightly exacerbated by the environment you're in. It's sort of got a cinematic nature to it anyway, and it's a strange, yeah. alien, alien world to be in. But you're right. I mean, the first the sort of the first half, if you like, of my trying to recu- rescue myself, uh, I can remember that. Yeah, that, as you say, passing very, very quickly. And then subsequently, once I was almost sat there waiting for for the end to come, it, it seemed to take a lot, lot longer than I i thought it would you know it, it seemed like long 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 minutes um I, the truth is we'll never really know how long that was and we can do the maths but there are a lot of variables in terms of how quickly i breathed and things like that so we'll never really know and we've got no record of uh, of when i actually fell unconscious but yeah you're exactly right it was um yeah a strange sort of moving time and even to this day it's uh when i think back to it 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 seems very surreal there's there's no doubt about that mm. i remember it feeling surreal at the time you know uh almost reverting back to being um, the little boy or the little, you know, the little girl that's inside of all of us, really. We haven't really grown yeah. up, have we, in truth, and, uh, you know, feeling bewildered, really, and, and uh, just astonished that I'd found myself in this position and that I was going to yeah. die in a strange and lonely place. How on, earth has, how on earth has this happened?
0: Continuing the conversation on Proverbs after this short break.
3: Now, if you know me, you will know I am not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. For me, the pressure of starting something new in January has seen me fail over and over again. What I like to do instead is I like to give myself a little bit of time to settle into the year so I can actually figure out what goals I actually want to achieve. Now, one of my biggest goals this year is to be able to confidently speak in a new language and this is something that I have been trialing and failing at and also working at for a really, really long time. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think about what you're wanting to achieve. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? Now, if you are like me and one of your goals is to learn a new language, You absolutely need to get Babbel, and I'm so excited to chat to you about this. Now, in just a few weeks of using Babbel, I have progressed my language skills in ways that I have never done before. And I've been using Babbel's 10-minute lessons, which are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. What I love the most about Babbel is that it's designed by real people for real conversations. And I think this is something where I've gone wrong before. I have been learning French on and off since I was nine years old. That is over a decade and a half now. Yet I still didn't feel confident in my communication. I was learning through textbooks, but I was actually lacking that human connection in my vocabulary. Babbel's courses have helped me to learn real-life conversation skills, to speak confidently and clearly in a way that locals will understand, as Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent too. It's enabled me to be able to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants, all without ever having to consult my language app whilst on vacation. Now, studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babel's 14 award winning language courses are backed by their 20 day money back guarantee. Now, I actually have a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, you can get up to 60% off of your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com forward slash proverbs. Now, you can get 60% off at babbel.com slash proverbs spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash proverbs. Rules and restrictions may apply. Does it feel like a memory, Chris?
2: Yeah, definitely. That's a good way of putting definitely. it. And it's it's hard because you tell the story a lot. And I feel like I've got a very vivid recollection of what happened. But um, just to give you an example, uh, you know, I would have been extremely cold very, very quickly because I'd lost my yeah. hot water. Uh, you know, pretty much hypothermically cold pretty fast. But I don't have any particular recollection of being cold, you know. So that tells you one of two things, either that, you know, the body is very capable of shutting off unnecessary senses I guess or that my memory of things is not quite what I think it is I'm not as lucid as I I remember so yeah it does take on a dream like quality the memory of it and um the, the weird thing obviously is that we've got a lot of it on film um, and yeah. thus thus they, thus they made the film so you you try it's hard after you know that's you know it's 2012 this happened so you know we're coming we're knocking on the door 10 years ago now and um you know you wonder how much of your memory is the film and how much is your actual memory if you know what I mean
0: I was shocked about how much footage was included in the film, actually. Even the footage that you sort of filmed in a vlog style as well, I know it was back in 2012, but I feel like you were kind of ahead of your time in doing that and you were sort of documenting your life, you know, as a diver and on on board a vessel and, and being out at sea, which you you were really able to document how isolating that can be um, sometimes. But I think that the footage in, in the film that you managed to capture and, and that was captured of the event as well was just incredible. Um, I really didn't expect that.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's really why the film got made. As I said, I mean they had the sort of the, the documentary makers. They had the you know the holy trinity. Really, they had the the protagonists all alive, I guess, and uh, and willing to talk as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then all this, yeah, as you say, all this this raw footage. So, not, I, you, I think ninety percent of the film, the footage you see in a film, is the real thing. There's there's a little, there are little, there are places we don't actually record. I'm probably letting maybe blowing the director's secrets here, but yeah, there's uh, there's some of the footage in the chambers, for example. That's not that's not the real thing because we don't actually record that. But they did come and record us at work, so it's sort of semi genuine. But it wasn't from the night. But yeah, yeah, that's that's thing. That's what makes it so powerful is that um, it's the it's the real thing you're seeing, yeah.
0: It really is. Um, So above the water, Chris, your crew, they're working hard to rescue you. Although at this point, the ship has pretty much lost control. I remember it being basically (laughs) compared to a sailboat drifting and your crew decided to control it manually, which is, is, am I right in saying it was that's only really used in a harbour with no wind? And at this point, you're in the North Sea in not the greatest conditions.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it's what's called a dynamic positioning system. That's the, the thing that normally is controlled by a computer and holds the boat in one single position so that we can work on the seabed. And that, that had failed. Um, and so, yeah, they were they were sort of found themselves in a, on a on the, on the bridge of the boat with uh, all their screens blacked out. It was the middle of the night. Well, it was 10 o'clock at night. So it was completely dark in, uh, in September. And um, they had no frame of reference. We weren't working anywhere near an oil rig or anything like that to give them orientation. So they were in a very, very difficult position with exactly as you say, a system that was they get a little bit of stick for not having to control the boat, but they were basically in an impossible position because it, as it say it's designed to nudge it into a key wall in the in a harbour. It's not designed to be used in anger. And it's it took two of them to control four joysticks and try and coordinate that. Very, 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 very difficult thing to do, yeah.
0: We spoke a little bit about the footage from that day that was captured and I think the most powerful bit of footage was when they finally had eyes on you you made it back to the platform as you said um and they said they were getting ready to send a diver down but they had they had eyes on you at the time so they knew exactly where you were and they said that you appeared to be waving how did it feel to watch that footage back of you Chris? because even as you know a viewer I found that so powerful and so emotional that's the image that really sticks in my mind.
2: Yeah, it does mine. It's probably the rawest bit of the film, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't waving, by the way. That's sort of unconscious movement, mm. I think. I'm definitely unconscious at that point. But yeah, um, so basically the ship was ended up being nearly 250 metres away from where I was. Um, and they were, you know, there's a snail trail of how they were trying to control the boat and it's like Spaghetti Junction. They just weren't managing. But what they did have on board is what yeah, we call an ROV, which is a remotely operated vehicle, which is a flying camera, basically. Uh, and that had a very long tether. So they were able to find me with that. Um, yeah, and that, that sort of harrowing footage that you see is what I'm talking about because that, that that you know, you see maybe a few minutes, you know, a couple of minutes there in the film, but that footage goes on for sort of 35 minutes while you wait for the boat to come back under control and for Dave to, to turn up. And I'm sort of twitching unnaturally. Um, but after maybe ten minutes to that, the, the twitching stops, and I go, you know, I go completely still, and they would all have assumed the worst at that point, you know. With, with you know, fair enough. But yeah, for me watching it back, it, weirdly, when we the mechanics of what we do means that even after the accident, we had to spend four days decompressing within the chambers, and then eventually we mm. were sort of released into the into the wide world. And the first thing we do was sort of congregate in a little office on the ship and and, and watch that footage ourselves um yeah. they were like, oh, come and come and see this <laughs> um but, yeah it's I feel it's it's surreal it's you feel like a third party I feel like anybody else watching it I think I don't really see it as me in a strange way you know um, I wonder if he's going to make it I think
0: <laughs> yeah do you remember Chris comforting yourself what what were you doing to comfort yourself as you were laying there until you
2: eventually fell unconscious so there's a, a wide range of emotions I mean I, I, I won't pretend I wasn't worrying about myself, because I definitely was, you know, <laughs> you don't want, to, don't want to die, but yeah. you, you're, you're, I remember thinking mostly about the, the people at home, you know, the, yeah. the, the enormous damage that was going to be done for those that, you know, I'm lucky enough have loved me, I guess. Um, mm. I was at a point in my life where I was, you know, exciting. I was, was I 32 or something like that. and um, Getting married the following year, and we were in the process of building a house and, you know, exciting times of our, you know, our and my future, and all the hopes and dreams that go with that ahead of me. So yeah, I remember really thinking that that's all about to be snatched away from me. And i remember envisaging my my fiance at the time being told the news and you know, my mother being told. And you know, you stupid I remember thinking about really stupid practicalities like you know, you know, we we're actually gonna get into the, the the online banking, you know, ridiculous, yeah, ridiculous I know. stuff, you know. Yeah. So it was it was weird. I was weirdly uh, calm's probably the wrong word, but I definitely wasn't. There was no panicking. It was it was very somber.
0: So the vessel now has eyes on you, Chris, and and they manage somehow to regain control of it. They're heading back to you, and then they send out a diver to come and save you. I'm guessing you have absolutely no recollection of this, and you've only just really seen the footage that they managed to capture.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the yeah. Uh, the crew on the boat, are Norwegian. So they call this the uh, the Swedish solution, which we're all familiar with, which is they basically turn the computer. Off and they turned it, turn it back on again. You know, <laughs> the Swedish, I think the Swedish call that the Norwegian. right it. there as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, so they did. They managed to regain control and move the vessel back to me. And once they were within, you know, they they basically put the bell, the diving bell, directly over me, and they lowered it right down to make uh, Dave, who was still in the water, hadn't got out of the water. Uh, he was able, you know, to make his job of recovering me as, as easy as possible. But yeah, I'm the same as you. I've only I've no memory of that at all. And I've just seen it on on tele. Um, but he 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 basically drops down. We're we're sort of negatively buoyant, so we're weighted because we're working on the seabed. Uh, but we do have a, a jacket which we can inflate to make ourselves um buoyant and easy to climb up and things so normally if David had been rescuing me he would have inflated my jacket and inflated his own and made you know made his life a lot easier to pull me back but uh, mine had been severed you know my uh, my air supply or gas supply had been severed so he wasn't able to use mine and what he did with his own was took it off and put the hose up what we call our neck down which is a rubber seal that goes around our necks the sort of uh, that the helmet locks onto to keep the water out and, and, and put that up there and turn the gas on to try and give me a bit of a, a breathing supply and then he attaches himself to me and and, and hauls me back up towards the diving bell. And you know Dave is a seriously fit guy, he's a sort of rock climber fit. You know he's got quite, quite a he's quite lightweight but very very strong. Um, and you can see in the film how much he's struggling because the boat is moving mm-hmm. up and down. There's a six meters of sea above him, so the diving bell moving up and down, sort of five or six meters all the time. That makes pulling. You know I weigh I'm well I'm about six about six foot five and I weigh probably more than I more than I should and. You know, gangly legs and all the rest of it—a it hard, hard, a really, really hard thing to do. So, you know, I don't think a lot of people really would not have managed that. Um, he said to me himself that if he hadn't got me over the sort of the lip of the little stage beneath the bell on the last effort, he probably would have had to let me go and, and start again because he was close to close to exhaustion. So, obviously, it's an effort I can never thank him adequately for. And yeah. um, he's an amazing man, and um, um, very, and he's very, very, very humble about it all. But uh, yeah, he, you know. People often want to talk to me, which is lovely. But, um, you know, the truth is I was I was a damsel in distress and all this. And you know, <laughs> the, heroes are the guys, the real heroes, are the guys who came to get me, you know, of which he was he was very much one of them. Yeah.
0: So, Chris, you were given a couple of breaths and you were brought back around by some absolute miracle. Thank God. What was your first thought when you regained consciousness? Did you remember? Did you realize what had happened? Did you know where you were?
2: Not really. I mean, that's that's when you watch the film, that's one of the bits we did have to recreate because there wasn't any footage of that. So that truth yeah. was probably more traumatic than anything that happened on the night was Duncan and I had to, we sort of recreated that in a... You know, well, in a place in Aberdeen, and he had started to give me the kiss of life about 20 times in a row. And none of us have ever really <laughs> Lucky guy. recovered from that, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I I describe it as a sort of slightly drunken sensation, I suppose. It was, I don't remember coming around, the vague memory of some flashing lights and things. Um, apparently, I was able to climb back up into the bell myself, uh, you know, on the main steam and sit down and, I think I, I I was acting as though nothing had happened. Almost, I was taking my gear off and doing what I normally would have done on the way back, um, kind of oblivious. I think to the to, you know certainly the magnitude of what had just happened. So, yeah, I've got a few flashes of coming back. The process of getting the diving bell back to the ship takes about thirty minutes, something like that. Yeah. Um, so I've got a few flashes. I remember seeing Dave crumpled in the corner, looking exhausted, and you know wondering why (laughs) Uh, and at some point I think you see in a film there's a bit of you know grab I could certainly grab Duncan's hand and I think you know so obviously knew something had happened but yeah very vague memories of that of that part of things yeah
0: you're very conscious of time when you're watching the film I think there's even a little timer that basically counts how long you were actually under all in all Chris how long were you under the water separated from your umbilical cord in your oxygen supply
2: from the moment the umbilical snapped to my helmet being taken off in the diving bell i think was 41 minutes um wow. the bit we don't know is how long my emergency supply lasted so mm. if you do the maths you know we have calculations for that and you know it works out at, i think nine minutes and one second but as i said there's that you know that could have been seven minutes it could have been 10 11 12 I, I, we really don't know but, yeah, whatever way you look at it, there's a massive discrepancy of of yeah. time with, with nothing to breathe, you know. So yeah, it, it, I mean, to this day, really, it beggars, it beggars belief, really. Do you know what kept you alive, Chris? I don't know. Uh, we've got quite a few theories. Um, I mm-hmm. did, a, did, a, did a call with, um, or did a sort of talk of sorts with uh, an, an intensive care conference last week, and that's probably as close as I've ever come in the 10 years since to to, to some really good answers, you know, doctors and ethertists and, and all sorts pouring over it. I'd always assumed it was the cold. You know, you hear stories, don't you, of kids falling through ice and surviving yeah. for ridiculously long periods of time under the water. They, they use ice to cool patients in the hospitals a lot. So we are talking about all of that, but they they seem to think that that may have been a factor, but in, in truth, it was it was almost certainly the, the gas I was breathing. So um, how we, as I said, so that day we were breathing, I think on the bottom, what, what we call 6%. So that had 6% oxygen in it compared to the 21%, you know, you and I are breathing right now, um, which obviously sounds, you know, if you were to breathe that on a surface that would you'd be unconscious pretty quickly. But at that depth, that's actually quite high an equivalent mm. equivalency of quite a high pressure of oxygen. Uh, and then in the bailout, it was an even higher quantity again. So I think basically my, you know, to cut a long story short, my my tissues have been saturated with oxygen really, but just enough, you know, um, just enough to keep us the, the individual cells alive. But I often make the point that while the survival seems slightly miraculous, it's more the fact that I survived with, you know, well at least no one's been brave enough to tell me otherwise yet, um, any sort of significant brain damage or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Um that, that seems more remarkable to me. Um, but yeah, that, they're all sort of theories, as we say. and We've got a few other ideas, but, um, you know, the truth is we'll probably never really, really know the mechanics of how it all happened. Yeah,
0: mm. Chris, I've got to ask, how was it seeing your wife again for the first time after?
2: <laughs> yeah, emotional, yeah. yeah. Uh, I can remember after it happened, I, I was pretty, I don't want to say blasé about it, but I didn't, I don't, I didn't appreciate really the scale of what had happened. Um, yeah. I remember I decided not to tell her, Uh, I thought, no, just there's no point worrying. You know, it's worrying enough having to send me off to work anyway, doing doing what I do, and um, I didn't want to have to panic or anything like that. Um,
0: why do partners always do that my boyfriend would be it. exactly the same he'd say do you know what I'm not going to tell her and it makes you worry so much more
2: yeah what else hasn't he, what else hasn't he told me yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm sorry yeah I, you know I've grown up a, up a bit since then but yeah <laughs> um yeah but so, like I say we have four days of decompression and then I think after about a day and a half you know we, so we're all sat in this chamber waiting to get out really and uh, my boss came over the, the intercom and said you know you might want to give her a call because it's it's going to be in the newspapers tomorrow. Yeah, um, you know, even then, you know. So I, I did. I rang. I remember telling her in the in the third person. I sort of recounted the story in the third person, and I think you know, towards the end of it, she guessed, you know, knowing yeah. what a catastrophe I am in general, that it was probably me who'd been <laughs> me who was involved. Um, she was. She yeah. She got very emotional about it. You know, even though obviously I was fine um she sort of i was saying you know stay stay at home i'll be home soon but she 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 wouldn't do that she drove you know drove pretty much straight to aberdeen and was waiting at the end of the the gangplank as soon as i got out and yeah it was mm. probably seeing her that triggered a lot of emotions you realize you know even more so the impact it would have had on on people so yeah it was a, a lovely moment yeah
0: i know in the film you also said that you were you felt sad at first or when you were sort of down at the bottom and you're about to fall unconscious. And then you said you were calm and it felt like almost falling asleep. And it was, this broke my heart this moment because it was almost like you were reassuring the rest of the crew. And it was interesting what you said earlier about how people deal with trauma and sometimes the person that's actually going through it doesn't necessarily experience the highest amount of trauma, and it's the people that are around you that are either seeing it or that love you and care about you and worry about you that are impacted the most. And you're almost reassuring them that you're okay even after the event happens. How do you come back from accepting death like that, Chris? I I, I don't know how you, you must see the world so differently now.
2: Yeah, I mean, first we 100% right about. About the trauma thing, you know, is I, I think I think it's probably because those who have to witness it are powerless, aren't they? To many, to you know, great extent. Talk to soldiers yeah. and things like that. Witness their colleagues, you know, suffering life changing injuries, and they they've often suffered as much as the people directly involved for that that reason. They're powerless and guilt and all the rest of it. You know, ultimately, it's had a happy ending, so it's you know a lot of that's been healed, obviously. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me, in terms of going getting over it, um, I don't know. I didn't really feel I had much to get over because I was fine. I think the truth is you, you know, I don't know. Maybe you're just a bit. You relativise it. I think at the time yeah. I was a bit, I was a bit younger. I was a bit more naive. I maybe had less responsibilities. Um, I mean, I've got two daughters now, and you know, hopefully a bit older and a bit wiser. And I think I probably would would have would do things differently now. Whether I'd rush to go back to work, and um, I would probably definitely take more time to talk to the people at home about you know the impact that I was going to have on them. Whereas you know what actually happened was I was you know probably a little bit selfish about it I was worried I remember being worried about my my job you know the practicalities of paying a mortgage and you know this is my career <laughs> have I just have I just blown my career and they gave us the opportunity to come back and we we sort of all three of us involved directly and grasped yeah. it with both hands and went back but I think the truth is it's like anything you know people ask you know have you had some kind of epiphany and do you as you, as you touched on there do you sort of see every day as a a bright new one and be thankful for it and there's some truth in that but I like to think I was like that anyway, Yeah, but also reality also takes over, you know, uh, you might feel like that for a day or two, but then you've still got to you know, take the bins out or, uh, you know, go and buy a pint of milk and the, 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 the life just takes over and it's, it's, it's quickly forgotten and you move on. And much of it was context. Of course, people have near death experiences all the time. You know, you might walk in front of a car and, you know, it just misses you, you know. Mm-hmm. um and you thought, oh, if that hit me that would have been that would have been game over you know and that's yeah. in a weird way the same thing but mine obviously happened in a, a slightly strange uh unusual environment and also had the luxury of time really to reflect on it so that's the reason it was a bit different but yeah I, I think you just you just that's just how life is you move on and um it, it seemed like such a freak accident that I I don't really envisage it happening again and I don't. Know, I can't really speak for Duncan and Dave, but for me, in a weird way, it's been a it's been a positive experience in my life. It's been a, yeah. a learning experience. It's it's brought lots of opportunities in a strange way. Um, I don't regret it happening, if that's um, that, that doesn't sound too blasé, you know. But um, I wish it hadn't. But you know, but mostly for the others, you know, for for, my, yeah. for me, it's been. It, I think the fact that we extricated ourselves from what was a seemingly impossible situation—that in itself just in terms of work as being a confidence building thing you know um in, in a weird way we go back a bit more confident that we, we can do that kind of thing get ourselves out of the the impossible wherever to happen again you know
0: life works in weird and wonderful ways and it puts you in situations sometimes whereby at the time they don't seem great but once you get out of it it, it really does show you how strong and how amazing you are and i i saw am i Am I right in saying also that you went back on another dive three weeks later after this happened? You were straight back to work?
2: Yeah. Yeah, be you're right. I mean, <laughs> you're right, because I'm, I'm not an amazing human being, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. I'm very much average. So, But it just goes to show we we as human beings, as a species, are remarkably resilient and capable of surviving yeah. incredible things, isn't it, you know? Um, but, yeah, they did. They gave us the choice to go back uh, three weeks later, so we were sort of shut down by the health and safety executive body investigating what had happened and rectified the problem obviously but yeah then the as a team of three we took the decision just to, to, to get straight back on the horse really and we went back together to the same place in fact and carried on the same job uh, three weeks later we, we, we the first job with it was took off the the metal uh the sort of metal outcrop that caught my umbilical that was job number one and then we, we sort of carried <laughs> there on there you go as normal yeah i mean it was weird it was we sort of laughed and joked and there was a bit of nerves but strangely as soon as we were in the water you know, the nature of the job takes over really, and you you know you forget you're in the water most of the time anyway, and you just get on with what you what you're doing, and it was, it was quite quickly forgotten. They don't let me forget it. They remind to this day. I get reminded about it every time I'm in the water, and some comedian above me will make a comment. But yeah, for, for us, strangely, it was fine. Yeah, <laughs> you still dive today, Chris, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I've just I'm just in the process of stopping, so I've um. I've I've decided to train as a a supervisor, so sort of the guy who actually nice. speaks to the divers from the the safety and the dry comfort of the of the ship. Because um, I've realised that sounds much more much more pleasant, you know. So yeah, I'm in the process of transferring, but yeah, I've been diving diving ever since. Yeah.
0: Oh, amazing! You're so, you're, you're a great guy. We ask this at the end of every episode. What's your mantra, Chris? If you have one, what keeps you going? What's some what's some words that you live by?
2: Well, that's tough. Yeah. Our mantra, our mantra is don't get your umbilical cord at work. That's definitely a mantra okay. at work. But in terms of, uh, in terms of life, I don't know. I don't think I, 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 don't like to preach, you know, I don't feel like I said, I think I've got much to tell people that they don't already know, but yeah, I mean, it is, it's got to be, you know, life is very, very fragile. You know, I got lucky, isn't it? Uh, but life is extraordinarily fragile. We, you know, there's tragedies every single day. So you really do cliched as it is have to live every day as if it's your last in in some respects you know there's just with our time I've all I certainly feel you know depends what people feel about the afterlife but my my feeling is that our time and life here you know on earth is very finite and um you've got nothing to lose so just go for it yeah yeah
0: (laughs) I love that I love your your perspective on resilience as well because we are so resilient as well um and we yeah we can get through a lot Chris you've been amazing last breath is on Netflix right now get yourself on a plane um and go and watch it over someone's shoulder as well <laughs> yeah, Chris you're an done. absolute inspiration thank you
2: so much for chatting to us yeah absolute pleasure Daisy thank you so much for having me it's been a uh, yes yeah, it was nice to talk to nice people so thanks for having me
0: <laughs> and that concludes this episode of Proverbs with Daisy Maskell that is me I hope you enjoyed it. Subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes, and
1: I will see you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality.